So we are back on um, Isaiah, I mean, on Isaiah, on Leviticus chapter 6 this morning. We stayed in Isaiah for so long, I think our brains defaulted to it now. Um, we're in Leviticus chapter 6, and we've said before, you know, Leviticus is one of those books that I don't know that I hear studied a lot in churches necessarily or preached a lot in churches, but it, it has some really deep meaning for us. Um, I think that in the passage here, we're going to see um, part of where we transition from just surely um, commands about how God is to be worshipped and the idea that God has the right to establish those commands to also a foreshadowing of how Christ fulfills those, um, particularly of the necessity of a blood sacrifice to be able to appease God's wrath against sin. So let's read together. I'm going to bump this down just a little bit, Russell. Um, let's read together and uh, we'll kind of pull it apart as we go. Isaiah, I mean, uh, Leviticus chapter 6. I'm still on that, Russell. Apparently the time change is still, you know, <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in yet this morning. Leviticus chapter 6. Right. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any or of all the things the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. So you have this sense, um, which we've seen in each of the sacrifices of, you know, we have, have a status before the Lord of being either innocent or guilty, and God sees people essentially within that framework. And so certain things that we do, uh, exposure to things that were unclean, or certain acts like robbery or lying, those kinds of things, put you in a state of uncleanliness before the Lord. Trespasses against a neighbor um, required earthly restoration. We know that sin has earthly consequences, right? Um, you can be forgiven by God for sin, and yet often there still are some worldly consequences to those kinds of things. In this case, God commands that if you have ended up with something un unrighteously, if you've either stolen it or if you found it, you know, if you discovered somebody's wallet, say, and, you know, helped yourself to the money that was inside without really looking to see whose name was on the driver's license or, you know, those sorts of things. If something like that happens, you can be able to have forgiveness before God, but it requires also an earthly kind of restoration. It requires taking the thing to the person to whom it belongs. And it says on the day, like the very moment when you realize your guilt, when God convicts you of what you've done wrong, you're to act right then. And you go and you take it back. And the provision was that you add a fifth to it. So because you have wronged your neighbor, because you have um, borne false witness to someone who is a, a brother or sister in God's family, you're supposed to add to that. It's sort of a, a kind of penance. It's kind of paying back the person for the lack of their property or their money or whatever for that length of time. And so you do that. And then you had to go and make a guilt sacrifice within the temple. And the, the status of being guilty before God is a lot of what Leviticus is about here is it points to the necessity of Christ as a sacrifice on our behalf. And so you have to go and you have to make this offering a blemishless 
ram from the flock or the equivalent thereof, and the priest offers it and makes atonement before the Lord. And so you can be forgiven even for theft, for lying, for some pretty serious sins. But it also comes with that requirement that you have made earthly restoration. We agree that, you know, someone who has been a thief or um, a um, cheated someone or those kinds of things in our society, we agree that while God forgives those people, we also have a requirement, which we think is a godly thing based on Scripture, that those people make some restitution to society, that they repay what they've taken from someone, that they, you know, do what they need to in order to um, repay their debt. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say there about this kind of thing when you find that you've got a, uh, a status of guiltiness before the Lord because you've done something that mistreated your brother or sister? He says, if you're offering your guilt at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift because God doesn't want to receive offerings from unclean hands. Those who have a guilty status before the Lord make their guilt offerings once they have made restitution to the people that they've wronged. You first went the moment that you realized that you had wronged against someone and you made restoration of whatever you could to make that right, and then you went and made the guilt offering at the tabernacle. So the first seven verses here kind of address the congregation of Israel as a whole, the lay people about the sacrifice. Talks to them about the status of being guilty and how you remove that guilt by both making earthly restoration and by doing penance before the Lord. And now it kind of switches over and Moses brings a word from the Lord specifically for the priests, for the Levite priests, about the sacrificial offerings for sin. So this first seven verses is sort of speaking to everyone in the nation of Israel. Beginning at verse 8, he starts speaking directly to God's priests. In verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, saying, spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has been reduced, following the burning, burnt offering on the altar, and put them beside the altar. Now, of course, as I said, this all points forward to the fact that Jesus himself became the ultimate sin offering. Um, fully consecrated to God, he suffered for our sin, and he made God's people able to die to our sin through what he did, something that could not happen through the sacrificial system because making a sacrifice that appeased God in that moment didn't make you more able to resist sin in the future necessarily. Um, Romans 6 talks a lot about that if you want to review what's taught here. The priests are told that they must wear white. That's a color that symbolizes purity and a lack of guilt, a lack of stain throughout Scripture. The garments that it describes here are actually specifically a kind of girdle sort of thing for covering the private parts. Um, and that would have been, you know, would have been fit to appear before the Lord in the temple with yourself exposed. Probably not so much because of the sexual function of those organs, um, but because of um, their uh, uh, uncleanliness because of excretion, um, it appears. That seems to be a principle that carries through in the Old Testament. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of shame placed on the private parts of the body for their function in reproduction so much as for their function in excretion and those kinds of things. And that's something that was not allowed to be, you know, exposed before the Lord when he came to make a sacrifice. 
Then verse 11, then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes. Remember, these are the ashes left over from the burning up of the offering overnight that stays burning on the altar. Carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Um, there's a couple of meanings probably that we can pull out of this idea of a continuous fire that never goes out. At one level, maybe it's a reminder of God's constant presence with his people. That God watches over us day and night. That God never departs from us. That God is never, um, you know, as, as um, uh, Elijah accused the prophets of Baal, God's never on vacation or out to use the restroom or where God is constantly there watching over his people. There's also a sense where we can recognize that that never-ending fire of sacrifice, though, is a visible reminder of the fact that the offerings for sin were never complete. There was never a moment when they weren't needed. There was a never a moment when everyone in the nation was fully justified before the Lord. God's justice requires constant, perpetual appeasement so that people could live and not just be consumed by God's wrath against their sin. And so the, the fiery consumption of that sacrifice on the altar, that burning up of that flesh on the altar, served as a constant reminder of God's holiness, of the fact that God's holiness obliterates everything that's sinful and everyone who rebels against God's rightful rule in their lives. Under the new covenant, we know that God's wrath still exists. Um, I think it's not necessarily something that we talk a lot about maybe in the church these days, but, you know, Jesus is pretty clear about the fact that God's wrath still exists as it always has against the sins of the lost. If we're not hidden in Christ, um, God's wrath remains against us, against everyone who is not redeemed in Christ. And we know for God's people, Jesus made that ultimate sacrifice. When he breathed his last when he fulfilled forever the requirement of a blood sacrifice for sin and permanently appeased God's wrath against God's people and permanently made us just and gave us righteous standing forever before God. What does he say? Remember that last phrase, it is finished. It is finished in Greek. Um, the term is to telestai, and it means to carry something to its very ultimate completion. Um, we have that prefix tele in English, that television, telephone, whatever, you know, that idea of something that's far away. And it, it literally carries an idea in Greek of to the very ultimate length that something can be taken. Um, and so we get this phrase that Jesus uses here for, that's translated as finished into English, but it actually comes from the, um, uh, the Roman law in Jesus' day. And what happened was if you were accused of a crime, convicted of a crime, they would um, take a piece of pottery, basically, just a little clay shard or whatever, and they would write on it the crime that you were being accused of, that you've been committed of. And that was, was tacked up next to your jail cell. It had your name, and it had that, that whatever the crime was, so this person stole or murdered or committed adultery or lied or whatever, failed to pay his taxes or whatever the crime was. And the Roman practice was, because 
Remember that throughout a lot of the Roman Empire, this was a common thing that, that um, Koine Greek was a, a widely used language. It was kind of multiply understood by a lot of people. So they used this term to telestai. It's what they wrote when your sentence was finished. And they would cross out whatever it was that you had been convicted of. And they wrote across it to telestai, completed to the end, finished, completely fulfilled. In other words, your sin had been obliterated by your payment of your debt to society by being imprisoned or by hard labor or by whatever it was. And so it's this concept of something is ultimately and forever completed. And they gave you that pot shard. You could carry that with you. So that if somebody on the street saw you in the marketplace and they say, hey, hey, there goes Ian. And you know, he, he's that guy that stole from his neighbor and he ought to be in jail. Ian can pull out this piece of pottery that says, to Telestai, completely fulfilled. It shows he's paid his debt forever. He's no longer guilty. His guilt has been obliterated. And that's what Jesus did for us before the Lord. It wasn't a, a temporary kind of thing. It was a permanent and forever to the ultimate extent that could ever be done. Complete fulfillment of what was needed to appease God's wrath against sin. So for the people of God, there's no more constant need for sacrifice or appeasement of God's anger because Jesus did that completely for us. Now that fire, that, that consuming fire of the altar, that consuming fire of God, that rage of God against sin and rebellion remains for those who are dead in their sins apart from Christ. But it can never touch God's chosen people whom he made his and made peace with through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Verse 14, and this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of the meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as a portion of my food offerings. It is a, a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 20, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it should be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 25, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it is splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. 
But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So there's a good bit of repetition here from chapter 2, but essentially we're reminded that the priests were entitled to eat the grain offerings that the people brought, except for the memorial portion. And that memorial portion was to be burned on the altar as a pleasing aroma to, to God, as a memorial to God, almost like incense. It was, you know, an offering from among the people's crops. Then the priests were free to eat the balance of it, but it had to be consumed within the temple courts. It had to be eaten only by the priests, and it had to be eaten within the court of the tabernacle, within the court of the tent of meeting. The Hebrew term that's translated here as it is most holy literally means only for the priests. In other words, it's set aside for those whom God has declared holy. Um, this also applies to the sin and the guilt offerings, but not to the fellowship offering, which the priests were free to share with their family and friends, interestingly enough. And even the priests themselves were required to make the same grain offering, um, starting from the day when they were ordained, and their grain offering, it says, had to be burned up completely, not eaten. In Hebrews, we read this about Jesus. For it was indeed, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later by the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Um, the rabbi scholars that were writing that kind of intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament wrote a lot of interpretations of the Old Testament. And they said that the grain offering represents the fruits of obedience. And Hebrews shows us that it was an emblem, um, a foreshadowing what we say in um, theological terms, a type of Jesus' perfect and obedient offering of thanksgiving to God. So we see here some very specific rules for the sacrifice. For the people's guilt, blood had to be shed. But the blood of animals was only temporary. It couldn't ever completely appease God's wrath towards sin because sin kept on abounding. Sin never ceased. Even the sacrifices just for daily worship were very complex and very specific. And we kind of look at some of that stuff and say, wow, wasn't that burdensome? But maybe that's the very point. For us to understand the depth of our sin and the holiness of God, you know, remember what God says to the prophet Hosea. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So it's not the sacrifice itself, but the effect on their hearts that God desires. In requiring these sacrifices and offerings, God didn't need the smoke from the burning of, of animal flesh to appease him. But what he wanted was to train them in obedience and righteousness, to train them to seek him and to follow him and to trust him. And through that sacrificial system, no doubt God turned the hearts of many people to himself. Um, but the sacrifices were always meant to point ahead to point them to God's plan to redeem his people through Christ.
in a way that was permanent and unending and it could never be taken away from them. And that requires a perfect sacrifice. A lamb or a ram or a sheep or a goat um, could be the best out of your herd. It could be the best that you had to offer. But the best that a human could offer to God is nothing like what God could bring to himself. And so as Jesus came in the flesh, as God um, come to pitch his tent among us, as John says, he became a more perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that would forever make peace with God. And the good news, the gospel, literally, is this. It's from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many are made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Jesus, God has done for his people what they could never achieve for themselves. He has not only required a perfect sacrifice to take away our guilt, but just as he did for Abraham and Isaac, God provided a suitable sacrifice. A sacrifice in Jesus that could appease his wrath forever and make us not enemies of God any longer, but friends and adopted sons and fellow heirs of the coming kingdom of God. Once and forever, fully justified before him. Call on him, cling to Jesus, and you will be saved by God's grace for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us.
in giving us a way to appease your wrath against our chosen rebellion against you and the things of your kingdom. Thank you, God, for becoming what you required, for becoming what we could never be. Thank you, God, that you gave of your righteous self because there was no righteousness in the world to make peace between man and you. Thank you, Father, for the sure knowledge that all those who will call upon your name will seek you, who sincerely desire to claim you as Master and Lord, will be redeemed. And that together we will one day sit at your feet to sing your praises and glorify you throughout all eternity. Lord, you are gracious and you are good and you are greatly to be praised. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.